Uh, hey, before we get started, um, let me just share something in a quick wrap-up from last week. I was thankful for a Christian brother called me up and said, hey, can I come over and just get 30 minutes of your time? And I said, yeah, bring a couple tacos and let's talk. So he grabbed a couple tacos, he came over, and he wanted to talk to me about a comment that was made in last week's sermon, and I think his concern may represent several more. So I referenced the verse where Jesus said, the one who is not against us is for us. And then I mentioned that we can appreciate other churches even if we don't dot our I's or cross our T's the same way. And then I just moved on. And his concern was that I didn't mention any boundaries to that statement. I talked about it with our pastoral staff and one of the guys on the pastoral staff said, yes, I was listening for the same thing. So others had the same idea. So it could have been taken as a statement that we as a church would appreciate and be together with any church, any church that embraces or endorses, practices sinful behavior. And so just for clarification, that verse doesn't mean that, nor would we take it that way. Here are other folks casting out demons and pushing back against sin, not embracing it. So we do not see ourselves as being like-minded with those kinds of churches, churches that endorse sinful practices. In fact, they probably aren't Christ's church because Christ calls us to repent from sin, not go out, embrace it, and defend it. So we find encouragement in those churches that believe the gospel, believe the Bible, practice obedience to it, and those that don't we simply have no fellowship with them. So if you were thinking the same thing, you have a brother or brothers that were thinking the same thing, and I hope that clarifies just a little bit more on that passage and how we would apply it to ourselves as a church family. Uh, let's do this. Let's pray and ask God to give us ears to hear, as Pastor Darren had mentioned, eyes to see, and then we'll study this text collectively in Mark chapter 10. Lord, we thank you for our church body, our church family. Thank you for those that um, love the word and want to hear it rightly divided and rightly taught. Um, thank you for the family dynamic that we have here where we can talk with one another and ask questions about the text and ask questions about where we stand on matters of the text. So thank you, Lord, for this particular church family. Please help us as brothers and sisters now as we gather around this table once again on a Sunday um, to be able to be fed from your word. And it's, it's like a light for us this week in a world of darkness. And we go out holding that light in front of us and we pray that you would guide us through the darkness with your light. So as we study this morning, God, please open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're coming to the 10th chapter of Mark, and we're looking at verses 13 and following. We're going to come back to the first 12 verses, which speak about divorce and remarriage. Um, if you weren't here last week, I mentioned at the end that I want our pastors to be able to read through some material together, talk about it, 
and be sharpened on it. And then I'll come back after we have those discussions and then preach those 12 verses. So we're looking at verses 13 down to 31, actually, this morning. Now, if you're joining with us, we're looking at Mark. What's Mark's big picture? From the very beginning of the gospel, Mark has said, I want to present to you Jesus, but not just simply Jesus. I want to explain to you who Jesus is. And so he opens up chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel by saying, Jesus is the Christ. And when we hear that term Christ, we're understanding Christ to be the deliverer, the savior, the king, the one whom Israel has been anticipating for centuries because the Old Testament prophets said a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one is coming. And for them, they were looking for a Messiah who would be a savior in a very physical way, who would be able to come in with a sword and fight back against Rome and push them back and then establish the throne of David once again in Israel. And so their eyes are looking for a very earthly king that's supposed to come. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And as we go through the gospel of Mark, we are seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But his kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that we're anticipating. Right now, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus rules and he reigns and his kingdom goes throughout the world here. And those who receive his kingdom are receiving Jesus as their king. And you say, well, he's a savior. What are they experiencing salvation from? If he's coming to rescue, how is this king providing deliverance? He's coming into people's lives, and as we look throughout the Gospel of Mark over and over again, we see him setting people free from sin and from the effects of sin. Demonic possession, he was setting them free. He showed that he has the power to set us free from sin by healing a paralyzed man. So words come out, hey, you're forgiven of your sins. And somebody says, well, anybody can say that. Show us that you're really able to forgive people of sin and set them free from the guilt and the punishment of sin. He says, okay, you want to know if my words have power? To the paralyzed man, I say to you, get up and walk. And this guy just blows everybody's minds. He gets up and walks. And so the idea is if he can say that to the paralyzed man, then his words about being rescued from sin must be true. So if you are here this morning as a Christian, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you've received the greatest freedom that anybody can have. You've received the freedom from the judgment of sin. Your sin has been taken off of you and put on Jesus Christ. Jesus is a Savior to you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you'll listen. I hope you hear and see more of who Jesus is who comes into people's lives and sets us free from sin. Okay, so that's how Mark is opening up his gospel. Here's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God in the flesh. Now, as we move into different sections of Mark, Mark is emphasizing different aspects of Jesus. So we're in chapters 8, 9, and 10. What's happening in these three chapters? Three times, Jesus makes a prediction. He tells his disciples, I am going to be delivered up. I'm going to be killed at the hands of men. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. 
They have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They have a category in mind that he's going to be an earthly king. And here is Jesus coming to his disciples and he's saying, I am the Messiah, but here's what's going to happen to this Messiah. I'm going to be killed. And the disciples stand back and say, there's no way that a successful king can accomplish his mission by being dead. Dead kings are worthless, right? They're defeated. And Jesus keeps pushing back and saying, no, this is how I'm going to bring salvation. I am going to bring freedom through my death. And three days later, I'm going to rise and I'm going to show you that I'm able to conquer all the effects of sin. I'm able to conquer death. This is mind-blowing for the disciples. They don't understand this about this particular king. And so Jesus is slowly bearing with them and eventually we'll get to the end of chapter 10 where he says that this king came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus predicts his death in these three chapters, he talks about himself as the Messiah, providing deliverance, and then each time he predicts his death, he follows up with something that you might not expect. He follows up with, if you're going to follow this king, here's how you need to live. And so that's just the pattern in 8, 9, and 10. It's a pattern of, here's what discipleship looks like. If you're going to be a disciple of this Messiah, if you believe in this Messiah, here's what it looks like to follow him. Here's what it looks like to be a disciple of him. And so we come to this particular part of chapter 10. So we're lasering in more and more. This particular part of chapter 10, where he is instructing us on how to see him more clearly And along with that, how to receive him as king. So here's the Messiah. Here's the great king that Mark is talking about. How are you supposed to receive him and receive this spiritual reality where Jesus is the king of your life? Okay, so two stories still laying a lot of groundwork. First story is about the children. The next story is about a religious, rich young man. And these two stories are purposefully put together by Mark to form a comparison and contrast. So we're going to see that. We're going to see how these two stories compare and contrast. But what we're aiming to do this morning is also keep our eyes on Jesus throughout this whole thing. All right, so I've thrown a lot at you. If you don't remember it, that's okay. Let's just get into the text and go. All right, point number one to the sermon is this. Jesus is indignant at those who hinder kingdom reception. Jesus is indignant at those who hinder kingdom reception. All right, so verse 13, the text says that they were bringing children to him. So here's Jesus going on with his ministry. He's become very popular among the crowds. Many people are following him. And at this particular occasion, there are people, probably parents, who are bringing children to Jesus. Now, the disciples, they see this. And these disciples, in this particular context, are like eager, overachieving assistants. They see the parents bringing the children to Jesus, and they begin to rebuke the parents and the children. Now, why would they rebuke 
the children and the parents. As we saw last week, children were seen as the lowliest individuals in society. They brought very little benefit to families in the sense that children couldn't care for themselves. They made no money for the family. They weren't able to work on the farm. And as a result, children were often seen as the lowliest and least significant in this culture. So here are the parents bringing their little children to Jesus. And the disciples are rebuking them, maybe saying, come on, Jesus has other very important business to conduct and carry on. He's got to talk to the adults. So children, those of you who are left in here, do you think that Jesus only wants to be a savior to adults and not for you? Do you think that Jesus is too busy with older people and looks at you and says, come on, just scurry away right now? That's not how Jesus responds to you. Jesus looks at you and says, I love you. I want you to come to me. In fact, back in chapter 9, Jesus said about you as children, whoever receives one such child, these insignificant little ones in your eyes who are significant in my eyes, whoever receives you receives me. And then he goes on to say, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble or to sin it would be better for him if a great big stone were tied around his neck. He was taken out in the middle of Lake Michigan and thrown out of the boat. And that stone carries him to the bottom of the lake and he drowns. It'd be better for somebody to drown than cause little children to sin. And Jesus is saying, I care about you, children. I love you. I love adults, too. But if you ever feel neglected and as though you're not important in the church context or in the Christian family, I want you to know I love the children. So how do you think Jesus feels when he sees his disciples rebuking the parents and the children? If you love somebody and you think they're vulnerable and you see somebody else coming along and hindering or thwarting them, what does that do inside of you? For example, let's go to the other end. Every once in a while, we'll see the news stories where a really strong thug comes up and punches an old, feeble grandpa in the head. What does that do inside of you? It makes you angry, right? Why would somebody use their strength to hurt or injure others? And this is what's going on in Jesus' heart, where he sees his disciples using their position to rebuke the parents and the children, and what rises up in Jesus is indignant anger. He's irate at what's taking place. He's outraged at what he sees. This is not supposed to be this way. Don't use your position to hinder the children. We see this in Jesus' life where Jesus does get angry. There was a man who was in a synagogue, and his hand was all crippled up. And Jesus was there, and he had an opportunity to use his power and strength to heal the man. And there were a bunch of religious men standing around looking at Jesus to see if he was going to break their laws. And Jesus looked around. He was grieved in his heart, and he was angry at how they were looking at the whole situation. Jesus gets angry when people use their position to hurt others. 
We'll see in a few weeks how Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that people have come in and they're using the temple to conduct business. So they have all of their tables all over the temple and they're exchanging money. And he comes in and he says, it's not supposed to be this way. So he forms a whip and starts driving people out and then flipping the tables over saying, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Jesus has anger that rises up when he sees things that are sinful and wrong. And it is actually a good thing because we don't want Jesus to look at the unjust sin in our world and see people using their strength to get unjust sinful ends and Jesus just be okay with it. We don't want that. It's the actions of his very own disciples that prevent the children from coming to Jesus and Jesus responds in an indignant way. Young people, perhaps you've been on the receiving end of an adult who has used his or her position and authority and hindered you from seeing Jesus clearly. Jesus is angry when you are treated as an outcast and when adults dismiss you as being unimportant. Jesus is indignant at adults and parents who hinder children from coming to him because they think other things in life are more important, other people in life. Adults, many of you had good parents, but some of you had lousy parents along the way. You didn't have Christian parents. And not that all non-Christian parents are lousy, hear me out. But you had the kind of parents that when you trusted and received Christ as your Savior, they rebuked and mocked you along the way for turning to the Lord and it hurt you deeply. They tried to hinder you from coming to the Lord and even following him. And all you wanted was encouragement, but they rebuked you for your faith. And know that Jesus is indignant at that kind of parenting, those kinds of actions. Others of you have been run over by religious leaders. They used their power in unjust ways and took advantage of you. Jesus is indignant at that kind of behavior. And here are the disciples who have erred into sin. And we see Jesus here and we know that he's not okay with it. He's angry at it. So what does Jesus do in response to this? Point number two. Jesus invites you to receive the kingdom like a child. In verse 14, Jesus speaks and says, Now let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So instead of closing the door to the children and agreeing with the disciples, Jesus throws the door wide open for the children to come to him and he invites them to himself. Now, why did Jesus want the children to come to him? Was it because they were very accomplished young children, the cream of the crop? Was it because they came and had much to offer to him? No, it doesn't say anything about that in the text. He invites the children to come to him simply because the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. The children want to come. What is one word that characterizes children? Okay, there's many words that characterize children a lot of times, right? 
But one word that comes to mind that fits this context is children want. They always want. They see something. I want that. And it can be the simplest of things, but it's the biggest of things to them. I want that. It can be something from the dollar store that just catches their eye. It's got fanciful color to it. Or it's something small that has, has just this, maybe a little Tonka truck. And a little boy looks at that and says, I love trucks. I want that. They walk into a restaurant and they see food in front of them. And all of a sudden, they're starving. I want that food. What is Jesus looking for in those who are coming to the kingdom? All Jesus is looking for is those who simply have want for it. He's not looking for those who come to him and say, here's what I have, I deserve it. He's only looking at those who have a craving for it and say, I want to come to Jesus. So just to press with an illustration a little bit further to keep you thinking, take an 11-year-old boy who just loves cars. His favorite car is a Jeep Wrangler. Let's go into this world now where it's not confined by 16-year-old driver's licenses. And he's going down the road and this young boy walking down the road and he sees a man that's standing on the side of the road with a billboard that says, free Jeep Wranglers to anybody who wants the Jeep Wrangler. And the boy says, I love the knobby tires. I love it without doors. I love when the top is off. I want to go off-roading. And the boy looks at the man who's standing up there with this billboard. Free Jeep Wranglers to whoever wants one. People are flying by saying, Jeep, ah, I like my posh little car. And this boy walks up to the man and he hears again, free Jeep Wranglers to whoever wants it. And the boy gets ready to hold up his hand and his parent goes, no, 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 it can't be for you. And he hears again, free, free to whoever wants it. And the boy hands up his hand and he says, I want it. And the guy goes, here, here's your keys. The only prerequisite for this world here is that you want one. And that's what characterizes children. And that's what Jesus is saying. Those to whom the kingdom belongs is to those who have a want for it. Those who want to come to Jesus and have him as the ruler, the one who reigns, the one who leads them in their life. All you have to have is want to such belongs the kingdom of God. Looking at these children and then looking at ourselves. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits. I just come as an 11-year-old boy. I don't have anything. Who has no clout or has no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the, sheer, on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. We come to Jesus just with our neediness. And we're saying, Jesus, I want you. I want you. Do I have a messed up life? Absolutely. In fact, my life is so messed up, I don't deserve what you have to offer me. I don't have any qualifications on what you have to offer me but I just want this. 
And Jesus says, I invite you, you who want, just keep coming, just keep coming to me, receive me. We see in Jesus a benevolent, kind Savior that he would invite you and me with all the sins, all the failures, and saying to us, just come to me. Come to me and be forgiven. Come to me and enter into the spiritual reality where I become the king of your life. I lead you through life. I forgive you of sin and give you eternal life. And all you have to do is not be good enough, but just have want and receive it in faith. Now what Mark does is he moves from the children to another story. The next few verses we see in verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. I mean, this must have caused a scene. Jesus is walking down the road and perhaps a few people are following him and here comes a man running up And then he gets right in front of Jesus and kneels down in front of him. Okay, what's this all about? And he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch those two words? I do. What is it that I must do? And where's the emphasis? It's on himself. Previously, It was on Jesus. This is what I want. He gives. Now here's this young man. Comes to Jesus. And he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him in verse 18. And he says, why do you call me good? He had called him good teacher. And he says, no one is good except God. So the logic runs something like this. This man's kneeling down. Jesus is going to start pressing in. You've run, 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 run up to me. You've knelt down in front of me. You're showing me respect. You call me the good teacher. And Jesus says, no one is good except God. So if you're really saying that I'm good, are, are you recognizing me as God? Jesus moves on, and we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, and he makes a statement related to how the man views himself. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So he's appealing to the Ten Commandments. Which half of the Ten Commandments is he appealing to, the first half or the second half? Second half. What does the second half of the Ten Commandments have to deal with? Our relationship with our fellow man. And so he's saying, you know that second half of the Ten Commandments, and the young man responds back, perhaps still kneeling down, and I think he responds in humility and in clear conscience. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay, so he makes a comment, good teacher, Jesus responds, keep the commandments, young man responds back, I've kept all these from my youth, it's kind of like a tennis match back and forth. Our eyes go back to Jesus. How is Jesus going to respond to this young man who has kept the Ten Commandments, at least the second half? Point number three. Jesus loves those who are interested in the kingdom. Jesus loves those who are interested in the kingdom. He's made this comment about keeping the Ten Commandments, or at least five through ten, Verse 21, notice what happens. 
Jesus looking at him, what is his response? He loved him. It's just kind of a striking statement where we're supposed to pause for just a moment. Jesus is standing in front of this man, this religious man, a man who is at the door of the kingdom asking questions about Jesus' eternal life, and, or about eternal life, and Jesus looks down at him, and he sa- the text says that Jesus loves this man. And I can't help but think that Jesus looks at this man, and in his mind, he's knowing with his omniscience, saying, I've known you from eternity past, young man. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. I knew this moment was coming, and now it's here, and I want you to, I love this man that's in front of me. And so Jesus looks at you, folks. Some of you are grasping for the kingdom. Some of you are grasping for Jesus, and you're wondering, how does Jesus even view me this morning? Here's the text. It says that Jesus loves you. You're interested in the kingdom. You say, I don't have much like this guy does. I really haven't kept the second half of the Ten Commandments like this man has. Jesus loves you. And how does he love him? He loves him by directing him in the path of truth next. He says the hard statement, which this is a good call for us, especially parents. Our children need to hear hard things. It's the best way that you can love them. And so what's the hard thing that Jesus says? He says, you lack one thing. Well, what is it? What's the one thing that I lack if I've kept all these other commandments? Here's the one thing that you lack. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus is looking at this man whom he loves, and he sees what is going on in the deep, deep part of his heart. He knows what's needed for this man to cross over the threshold and come into the kingdom where Jesus would be his God, where Jesus would be his Messiah, his Savior. And what is it that this man needs? This man needs to let go of the thing that he's holding on most tightly to. He's holding on to his wealth. Jesus knows that in his omniscience. He knows what this man's heart. He knows your heart this morning. And so he tells this man, for you to come into the kingdom to follow me, it's going to mean that you're going to have to abandon your other master that you've been following. You can't serve two masters in this kingdom. It's going to be me and no one else. And so for you, young man, you have to go get rid of all of your riches Go give them to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. Now, so many people at this point, they get hung up, and they just think, are we supposed to take the oath of poverty in order to cross over into the kingdom? And again, remember, no, Jesus is addressing a specific person, and he's addressing what's on the throne of this man's heart. And right now, it's the dollar sign. And so Jesus is saying, that idol has to be removed in front of you, and what has to be in place is myself. Come and follow me. But you might ask the question, money does mean something to me. How do I know, how would I know if I'm this man and just being deceived and thinking I'm following Jesus? 
How would I know if money is more important to me? Just a couple questions. Number one is this, am I honestly willing to part with it if God calls me to it? So, this is kind of hard, but place yourself in the story. Place yourself before Jesus. Jesus walks up to you and says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you, you, you have to give up all of your money and follow me. As you hear that, are you saying, okay, this is going to be hard, but I want to. I really want to follow Jesus to the end. Or are you standing back and saying, forget that. You know where you stand then. If that's a forget that kind of heart comment, you know you're not in the kingdom. You know Jesus doesn't sit on the throne of your heart. If you're saying, okay, Lord, wow, this would be difficult. But you're saying, okay, for the next 30 years of my life, to give up this in order to follow Jesus faithfully and receive eternal life, that means, okay, under Jesus' rule and reign, you're saying, I submit to Jesus. I'm not submitting to money. I'm submitting to Jesus. Okay, that's one question you can ask yourself. Second, you can ask yourself this. Am I currently obeying God, my king, with the money that I do have? The Bible talks about regularly giving money. 1 Corinthians 16 talks about on the first day of the week, set something aside for the church family. That's how you give to God. Under the old covenant, it was the tithe. Under the new covenant, it's the grace of God that's at work in your life to give. Are you giving financially to God or are you holding on to it and hoarding it? It's not a good sign. If you have money, do you share your money or what your money has attained with others? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and following, where he charges those who have wealth to not be haughty, to not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us richly with everything, and then to take what you have and freely share it with others. Does that characterize how you use money? Are you leaning into that? In all of this, Jesus is looking at this young man and he looks at us. And at times he sends his spirit to convict us at the deepest parts of our hearts to say, you have to repent of that. You have to turn away from that. Whatever it is, for this man it was his money. You have to turn from that. It means too much for you. If you don't turn from that, you can't come and enter into this kingdom. And Jesus loves us enough throughout the word of God over and over again to say, repent, turn from that. And so this morning, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, the most loving thing that you can hear this morning is repent, turn from that and follow Jesus this morning in faith. So the story continues. Point number four, Jesus warns of a specific hurdle in coming into the kingdom. Jesus warns of a specific hurdle in coming into the kingdom. Verse 23. Well, verse 22, actually, let's conclude with that. Disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked around now, and he sees his disciples probably shocked at what has just taken place. And he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth 
to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, the response in verse 24 is they're amazed at his words. Why are they amazed? Probably because under the old covenant, one of the means of blessing was wealth. So how is it that this man who's kept at least the second half of the commandments and has wealth, how is it that he's not in the kingdom? So Jesus says to them again, children, and he dresses them that way, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You think about this for just a moment. What does wealth deceive us with? Wealth says, if you have me, you need nothing else. Wealth has the facade of providing security for you. Wealth has this promise that calls out, if you just have me, you'll have enjoyment. So wealth makes all of these promises, and somebody who is coming up to Jesus, who is not entered into the kingdom, Jesus looks at him and says, this is going to be a huge hurdle for you. How huge is it? It's about as huge as taking a big old lumpy, dumpy, humpty camel and taking your three-inch needle that's got a little eye on the top of it and saying, we're going to get you through the eye of that needle. And the disciples look at this and say, well, that is impossible. And that's Jesus' point. It is impossible for someone who sees wealth as their security to actually enter into the kingdom of God. But then, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And he responds in verse 27, he looked at them and said, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the last point of the sermon. Jesus encourages those who are in the kingdom. The ability to come into the kingdom now is not an ability that a man can do on his own. To receive Jesus as your king and to enter into the spiritual reality where you are given eternal life and have all of the promises that God has given to you, to enter into this kingdom is not something that you do on your own. In fact, it's impossible. God alone has made this possible, and you can look at it from two ends. God has made it possible in the sense that only he provided the forgiveness of sins. Only he provided the open door for us through Jesus to come into this kingdom. And then you can look at it on the heart level. It's only God who can work in the heart to convict us of sin and open up our eyes to see the treasures of Christ and say, I want that more than I want that. That's a work of God in our hearts. And so with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. Be encouraged, folks, that your salvation that has happened in you is a kind work of God to bring you through the eye of the needle. 
He did the impossible in your heart. You could not have done this on your own. And so we sit here this morning as children of God and all we can do is say, wow, thanks for working in my heart to give me a desire to receive the kingdom. He encourages us on another level as well. Peter says in verse 28, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus responds and says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Well, what will this hundredfold look like? He says, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands. And then he says, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What does Jesus mean by this? I think that what he means by this is that when you enter into the kingdom of God, you left something behind. For some of you, you literally left your family. They saw you walking down the path of Christ and they scoffed. They mocked you. They thought this is the dumbest thing that he could ever do. Someday she's going to come to her senses. And it's almost like a severing took place. You lost your family because you held to Christ. And if that's the case, Jesus says, you just came into a whole new family where you have mothers and brothers and sisters and you have a hundredfold more to enjoy, which means, folks, look around and don't undervalue the gift that God has given to you in one another. We are brothers and sisters, and some folks are really hurting and challenged, and we have a responsibility and a privilege with one another to be God's gift to each other. And he throws in those two words. By the way, as you walk down this road, there will be persecutions. This is not the easy life to follow me. But you will receive more. And then he says, and in the age to come, the eternal state. He closes up by saying, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's just this idea as we saw earlier, those who are going to be servants will be exalted. Those who are exalted in this world are going to be demoted. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and it is that way in so many people's eyes, and that's why they say, why would you enter into that? Why would you receive it? Why would you receive it? Why have we received the kingdom? And we step back and we say, we've received the kingdom because here's the king. We look at the king and we say, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus who is indignant at those who thwart the kingdom. Here's Jesus who invites. Here's Jesus who loves. He calls us along and he encourages us. So this morning as we come through here, we see this dual aspect of simple faith and reaching out and holding on to Jesus and saying, yes, I'm coming to you in simple faith because I want, you've created, I want, we want Jesus. Let's pray.